Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi there, welcome to When to Jump. My name is Mike Lewis, and we are going to take you back in time today to one of our most popular episodes with Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen is the podcaster and author of The Four Tendencies, which we talk about in depth, in great depth in this interview. Uh, this was one of my favorite conversations. I know I've said that before, but Gretchen truly is, is wonderful and brings such an analytical and intellectual mind towards thinking about happiness and how we approach our jumps, and I know you'll enjoy So keep listening, and we're going to take you there now. Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast today. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thanks for having me. Well, it is a real treat, and I I have so many questions to ask, but I think, you know, what what serves this show well and and what listeners seem to enjoy is the personal narrative around uh, someone who has actually jumped. And so you've got a lot of insights and expertise on why people should jump, but I'd love to start with your story because you didn't go into what you're doing now straight out of school, did you? No, I didn't. Um, no, well, I uh, started out my career in law, and so I went to college, and then I went to law school, and I went for all the wrong reasons, you know, like, oh, it's a great education, it'll keep my options open, I can always change my mind later, I'm good at research and writing, um, and I did great in law school. I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law, the Law Journal, which is like the law review at Yale, and I was clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court when I realized, you know what, I actually want to be a writer. Um, And what made it easier for me to see that was I had become preoccupied with an idea. Um, And I was researching and taking notes and writing and uh, in all my free time. And then finally, it occurred to me, you know, this is something that people do as their job. I'm doing what you would do to write a book. Um, And writing a book is something that people do as a job. And so maybe instead of treating this like my hobby, I should see if I could um, write a book. And, and, and at a certain point, I decided, you know, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And so I, I really need to just give it a shot. What was the hardest part in that internal dialogue with yourself? You know, looking back on it, it doesn't seem that hard. I bet it was harder um, than I remember, but it sort of happened to me gradually. There were a lot of things that kind of came together. So one of them was I had this friend who was in an education graduate school and she had all these books lying around her house. And I said to her very dismissively something like, oh, I guess you have to read this for your program. And she said, oh, but that's what I read on my own anyway. And I thought, wow, I want to be doing in my free time what I do for work. I want that to be my job. And I was, you know, because I was clerking in the Supreme Court, I was surrounded by people who loved law. I mean, they wanted to talk about it on the weekends. They were reading law journals on the weekends. They wanted to talk about it during the lunch hour. And 
I and I knew that I didn't bring that kind of enthusiasm to it. Like I did everything I needed to do to get do an excellent job for Justice O'Connor, but I didn't spend any minute on it that I didn't have to. And in fact, one of the things now that I um, think about, and and my sister and I talked about it on our podcast, Happier, um, is they love talking shop and i didn't like to talk shop i wanted to talk shop as little as i as little as possible whereas now as a writer i love to talk shop it's like that's my favorite thing is like talking about writing and the business of writing um and then one day i just went to the bookstore and bought a book called something like how to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal and i just followed the directions um, about, you know, how to write a letter, how to get an agent, how to write a sample chapter, all that stuff. I mean, it sounds so much simpler now. I know it wasn't as simple when it was happening. Um, but, you know, sort of everything came together at that time. Did you feel any pressure given that you were a leader and, and successful at Yale, you're at Yale Law School, then you're, you're, you're clerking for the Supreme Court, which, by the way, for those who don't follow kind of the, the path from law school, I believe that is kind of like playing for the Yankees, right? Yeah. You know, so, so when you get to that point, you're like, geez, I kind of want to be a writer. I mean, I faced that. I was working in, in finance feeling like, you know, this is what I should be doing. How could I not be doing this? And then for me, it wasn't writing. It was playing an unknown, obscure niche sport. But that feeling of, of letting down others was mm. almost more scary than letting down myself and failing for myself. Did you have that sense at all? How was your family and your, your friends uh, as you approached them taking this? Well, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because one thing that I really appreciate now in a way that I didn't understand Stand at the time was that the attitude of the people around me was very encouraging. Um, and, you know, now, especially that I'm a parent myself, and I see from talking to people that a lot of times people from the deepest love um, will discourage us from taking risks because they don't want to see us risk failure. They don't want us to see um, us get our feelings hurt. They don't want to see us get rejected. And so they want, and they don't, they don't want us to like be, you know, um, be in a situation of uncertainty or like, you know, uh, instability. And so they try to get us to do something safe. This is the safe path. Stay on the safe path. Then you'll be safe. But the fact is there is no safety um, because, you know, whole professions have crumbled before our eyes uh, in the last 10 years. So there is no safety. It's easier to take a risk when you're younger. And so to discourage a young person from taking a risk, I've talked to a lot of people where they're like, well, I could have taken this risk at this point, but everybody talked me out of it. And so now five years later, I'm doing it. And I'm like, yeah, but it would have been easier five years ago. Like they really kind of put you off the path that you intended to be on. And it's too bad because not that you can't do it now, but it might have been easier because when you're younger, you tend to have the stakes tend to be lower um, and you tend to have more flexibility in your life. And as we get older, we gather more responsibilities and kind of more hooks into the world. But the, the attitude of my family and by the way, my parents paid for my law school education. So like this, like they were really putting their money where their mouth was because they were like, that's fine. If you don't, if you if you want to try it, that's fine. Um, and, you know, I literally had every feather in my cap that I could have as a lawyer, and I had nothing as a writer. I didn't have a clip. I, ne- I never, I didn't do anything like write for the college newspaper. I didn't write short stories. I hadn't been published anywhere. I mean, nothing, 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 nothing. And their attitude was like, give it a shot. This is great. And my father said something to me that to me was tremendously reassuring. And it's funny because I've mentioned it to people since, and people, People's reaction sometimes is that they think it's an undermining thing to say. But to me, it was reassuring, and he meant it to be reassuring, because I was telling him about my idea, 
and how I wanted to write a book. And he said, well, you know what, darling? You might not knock it out of the park the first time, but if you stick with it, you will. And to me, this was reassuring because he was saying, you don't have to be a success right away. You might be a success later on. You don't decide whether you've succeeded or failed based on what happens the first time. Because who knows what's going to happen the first time. Yeah. And so to me, I was like, oh my gosh. Like, it's like, it, I don't have to hang my whole future on this one project, you know? And, um, but now I see like their, their willingness to just be like, you want to do this? That's so, great. Fine. Go for it. Like, you know, do it. Listen, you know, and, uh, and my husband was switching too. He was also a lawyer we met in law school and then he was switching into finance. And so we were living in Washington DC. And so we were like, we're going to move to New York city. I'm going to start working on my book full time and getting an agent and doing all that. He's going to get a job in finance. We're going to stop paying our bar fees and we're just going to switch. So it was just like, we moved. And I remember the day when the letter came about the bar fees. I'm like, should we play our bar fees? You know, just to just to be admitted to the New York bar. And he's like, are you kidding? No, this is a lot of money. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, there you go. We're like, we're, we're in it. Um, so I You're think that it. was helpful too, that he was also going through a big transition. Yeah, totally. Well, there's two points that, that stick with me in that story is that I remember I found three people to talk to outside of my family. I mean, when I was thinking of jumping, my parents were supportive, but they were realistic. And like yours, you know, they invest a lot in education. I was the youngest of six, and it was like, you know, no one had gone to um, an Ivy League school, and, and then I had a job. I felt like I won the lottery. So there was just a lot of weight, and I remember I found three people. One was a Switzerland, you know, someone who was totally objective and unbiased observer of my life. Uh, a nuts person, you know, who was also, th you know, a doer and someone who, who had jumped at some point. And then I think the third person that I don't know if you found this, but I found was what I call an oops, you know, someone who wanted to do it. And like you said in that story of the person who didn't jump and five years later wanted to, you know, hearing them talk about the, the regret of not jumping ultimately was the best advice I could have ever gotten to actually go. I don't know yeah. if you found people who wanted to leave law, but never did. And if that pushed you at all. Um, no, not so much. And, but, you know, and I think, I think, um, I think sometimes people want there to be a mentor. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes people, they want their, they're kind of waiting for someone to say, yes, you should do this or give them permission or almost to be like a patron or like, I'm going to make it easy for you or I'm going to smooth your path. I feel like it's dangerous to wait for that. I've never myself had a mentor and like no one really, I mean, I had many people who helped me along the way, but no one made a special project out of me. Nobody like made it their cause to help me. And I know people that that's happened to, and it's great, but I wouldn't wait for that. I think it's, that's unusual. And it's so appealing because it feels like, oh, your fairy Anointed. godmother is going to show up and make this easier. I'm like, don't wait for that because it might not yeah, happen. It's so true. We, we had Sheryl Sandberg on the show uh, before, and she, she mentioned that, you know, the, one of the more awkward things you can be asked on the other side is, will you mentor me? Yes. And I, it's kind of like, uh, it's so awkward. And yeah. I think you're right. You can be waiting for, you know, that superpower to walk in your door yeah. and, and that person's never going to come. So yeah. you're right. And, and then lo and behold, if you go out, do what you're going to do. And like you said, you kind of burn the ships there by saying, we're not renewing the bar fees. We're we're doing this. You're going into finance. I'm doing the writing. Lo and behold, at least I found that that's when people start to come to you. It's not, you know, six steps before when you're thinking about it, but you're still, you know, a lawyer. Right.
Right. Well, and one of the things, too, is I think sometimes people kind of set up a false choice. It's like all or nothing. Like, I have to stay where I am and do nothing, or I have to, like, like throw everything away and completely start anew. And a lot of times you can do... Um, you can have a side hustle, you know, like there's the side hustle school podcast where he talks about like starting something while you still have your day job and then you can learn and you can see, well, are you really interested in doing that? And, you know, is this going to work before you don't? And like with me, I was still working full time as a lawyer and I actually took another even one uh, a job after I left the Supreme Court. I went to work for the Federal Communications Commission. So in a very intense full time job. But in my free time, I was working on this book project. And so for a while I had both going and and so I could sort of see, like, is this really something that I'm committed to or is this like something I'm interested in for three weeks? Is this thing going to burn itself out or is it really going to hold my attention to the point where I really want to um, really deeply commit to that? You know, I didn't do it overnight. I kind of played out both for a while. Um, yeah. Same thing with my husband. Like, he took a class in financial accounting at night. You know, so that when he was is to prepare himself to make the big jump. You have done a wealth of research. You've got an incredible a podcast called Happier, which I highly recommend everyone go check out. It's wonderful, very uh, compelling, and really attacks the subject from different ways. And then you've got your latest book called The Four Tendencies. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you found and really what drove you to making this book? Well, I was writing my, my previous book, which is called Better Than Before. It's all about the 21 strategies of habit change. Because like you, I found like a lot of times people are like, I know I would be happier if I exercised or if I quit sugar or if I practiced the cello more, if I wrote that novel or if I got more sleep. Like, They know what would make them happier, but, the, but, but for some reason they're not able to. So I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book that's about all the ways that people successfully change habits. I mean, what I found is that there was this pattern about when people how people approached habits and when they could successfully change habits that led me to understand that the world is divided into people of four types, which I call the four tendencies. And so the four tendencies um, kind of explains why people act or why they don't act. And it has a lot of implications for people making big changes or little changes. Usually people can tell what they are from this brief description, but there is a quiz on my site, GretchenRubin.com. If you just go to GretchenRubin.com and search for quiz, you'll find it. And like 1.3 million people have taken this quiz now. It's free. It's quick. So this has to do, it's a very narrow aspect of your personality, but it's very significant. It's how you respond to expectations. Now, we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations that are imposed to, on us from others and the outside, like a work deadline or request from a friend. And then there are our own inner expectations, my own desire to write a novel my, in my free time, my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. So depending on how you respond to outer and inner expectations, you're either an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet a work deadline and they keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. They, they want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do it if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation. If something meets their standard and they think it makes sense, they'll do it. If not, they will push back. They typically resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, uh, irrational. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And so 
Um, this is a person who never misses a work deadline and never hands in work late um, at the office, but when they're, they're trying to do projects on their own, they struggle. Or like they never miss the class at gym or working out with a trainer, but when they're trying to just go running on the weekend, it's hard. Then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. Um, they can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. So those are the four tendencies. Where do you fall on that? Well, I am 100% an upholder. Um, and, and so many things in my life became clear to me when I realized that I was an upholder and also important that it's a very unusual tendency. So there aren't equal numbers of all the tendencies. The biggest tendency by, by a significant amount for both men and women is obliger. That is the biggest tendency. Hmm. Um, you either are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. Next after them is questioner. A lot of people are questioners. Huh. Rebel is the smallest tendency, but then my tendency is only slightly larger, upholder tendency. I was going to say that the upholder syndrome maybe is that you, because you feel like you can put your mind to anything and, and it, it will work, you can kind of spend your days being like, well, what should I put my mind to? Like, what path do I make for myself? And I don't know if you've seen that with all the success you've had, it may open even new doors, which could be great, but also could take you away from what you really want to be doing. And I don't know, I, I think of a story in the book from a former garbage man who became a furniture designer in the northwest state of Washington, uh, northwest part of Washington state. And he became this great designer after years of basically living below the poverty line. And he got discovered through a blog that happened to pick him up. And all these people, it's kind of like the, you know, the businessman in the tribal village who says to the fishermen, you know, you, you yeah. should just get more canoes. And everyone was like, hey, there's investors, there's, you know, employees that want to work for him. There's people that want to build factories. And he was living in a 102-year-old farmhouse with his wife and two kids, homeschooling the kids, spent all the time with the kids, and he made furniture a couple of days you know, a week, would go sell it. That's what he wanted, and he was like, the biggest thing you have to remember is, is not to just kind of go with the flow because of that external feeling of, well, this will make me look good. This is what I should want. And I don't know, I think that can become a problem for people who find success. Well, it's interesting that you tie that to being an upholder because definitely one of the downsides of being an upholder is that you you, you can execute, you can do things. And so um, one thing that was interesting for me in writing the Four Tendencies book was realizing that two of the most important people in my life, my, uh, my outside my family, my husband and my, I mean, my, my, my born family, my nuclear family, my husband and my literary agent, who are, you know, incredibly important to me, both of them, are both questioners. And I don't think that's an accident, because I think one of the things about a, an upholder is it's too easy to say yes, because you're like, yeah, I'll just do it. And then it's exactly. like, but I'll say to my agent or I'll say to my husband, should I do this? And they'll be like, why would you do that? And that's really helpful for me. It saved me a lot of time and energy because I have somebody who's like, because to, to my husband or to my agent, it's like it, there's no emotion to them in saying, why would you do that? Whereas for me, I always have this like impulse, which I've learned to control, the impulse to just be like, yes, I can do that. Yes, I will do that. Instead of being like, yeah, why would I do that? Because it's, you know, totally. so, it's, so the four tendencies, like in combination, they really, they all have strengths and weaknesses that are very complementary. And so... Um, like re obligers find it very hard to say no to outer expectations, so they're often drawn to rebels because rebels are like, I love saying no to outer expectations. Watch me ignore the rules and do what I want. I don't care if your whole family says that we have to go to brunch at noon. 
we're gonna sleep late and we'll see them at three. You know, and an obliger's like, Austin, totally. can we do that? And the rebels say, come <laughs> with me. So all these things are, comf- you know, everybody, uh, of course, the things that you are attracted to also probably drive you crazy. That's just like the, the truth about relationships. And certainly my husband's questioner aspect sometimes really, is, I do find it annoying, but it, sometimes I find it enormously valuable and, uh, you know, and I try to emulate it myself. So, um, yeah, so I think, I think that um, t- uh, being aware that you shouldn't be too ready to meet expectations is something that's important. You want to be able to meet expectations when they're right for you, but you also want to be able to resist expectations when they're not right for you. And that's that. how that calculation plays out is different for for everyone, par- partly based on the tendencies and partly to pace based on values and interests and other things. Totally. And, and I see this as an upholder, but maybe this is just broadly in, in the aspect of deciding to, to jump and making a jump is that, you know, you got to wake up and you got to hustle, you got to, you know, make things happen. But the downside of that is, like you said, you start to kind of feel like you need to go do everything and because you can do something that means you should do something yeah. and I think that's an upholder piece where it's like mm-hmm. okay you got to be able to sit back and and start saying you know yes to things and, and maybe no to others and maybe that's maybe I need a questioner in my life you know maybe that right. would be helpful right and so. it's one of the things I always um, whenever people are trying to give advice to others and they say things like you just have to want it. You just have to get clear on your priorities. You just have to know what you want. That's not enough for an obliger. So it's like, that's enough for an upholder. That's enough for a questioner. And it works for rebels in a very different way. They get there but very, from on a very different road, but they get there too. Uh, their, their road is different from the upholder and questioner road, but they get there. But for an obliger, that is not enough. Right. And, it, and so when people insist... If you just know what you want, you will. then that is what will happen. What you see is that people, obligers, will try to whip themselves into a frenzy of passion, of motivation. They feel like, well, mm-hmm. I, I clearly just must not be motivated enough. I need to work on my motivation. I try never to use the word motivation. I think the word motivation is incredibly misleading and confusing because it, com- it conflates your desire for an outcome and your willingness to take action toward that outcome. I'm, yep. I'm really motivated to lose weight. I desperately want to lose weight. If I whip myself into a frenzy of desire of losing weight, will that make me change my eating habits? No. No, it will yeah. not. Right. So why are you, why, you're, this is a real misdirection of energy. And the idea that if you just wanted it enough, you would get there, no. Uh, what you need is outer accountability. And so it's just like, okay, just just do that. And so I think sometimes um, upholders and questioners um, who often feel very well, and I say this as an upholder myself, feel very well equipped to give advice to others because whatever they do themselves works very well. I mean, I have I know so many upholder people who are like have a system that they have written a book about or they're talking about. They're like, well, my system works. And I'm like, yeah, because anything would work for you. Right. Because you're an upholder. You know, and, exactly. and it's like, and, yeah, and like, and they're totally. like, well, other people should be more like this. And if they followed my system, they would be. I'm like, but they don't follow your, they won't follow your system in your way. And you've got to take that into account. Yeah, um, everybody can get there. Yeah. Everybody can get there, but they have to get there in the way that's right for them. There are those, the languages of love. Yeah, people I love talk love about languages. It. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's, that's it. You have to understand what your partner might be. And it's the same with what you do in the four tendencies. No, no. And I think that's a great analogy because the, the thing that I thought was most interesting about the five love languages is that 
was the Gary Chapman's insistence, you can't speak the language that comes naturally to you. You must speak yes. in the language that is heard by your partner. Because it's like if one person understands Chinese, it doesn't matter how loud you're yelling in Russian because they only understand when you're speaking Chinese. So you got to learn to speak <laughs> Chinese if you want that person to understand what you're saying. It doesn't matter what language is, comes easily to you. And the same thing with the four tendencies. It's like if you're a questioner, like questioners will often be like, well, if I just give you more and more reasons, if I forward you articles, if I show you research, if I sit down and like give you a really, really, really long explanation, then you're going to start exercising. And it's like, and then they're like, how can this be? Why can, why is someone not persuaded by all of my justification? I'm like, because they're not questioners. So you're just speaking questioner language to them. That's not what is going to be persuasive to them. Um, and somebody, in fact, in talking about messages, because one of the things that's a, a big challenge is like, how do you create a message that resonates with all four tendencies? Because, and it's funny, I, I love signage, especially like office signs mm-hmm. or like in hotel rooms. Like, some of them do a really good job of like hitting all four tendencies, and some do a terrible, terrible, terrible job. But somebody pointed out a message that is decades old that we haven't seen broadly uh, said in decades, and yet everyone still remembers because it was so succinct and so effective. And think about it, it works with all four tendencies. Only you can prevent forest fires. (laughs) It works with upholders, it works with questioners, it works for obligers, it works for rebels. Only you can prevent forest fires. Because each one of them, in their own way, hears that message and it strikes a chord. But saying something like, Please clean your dishes. Your mother doesn't work here. It's just like that's going to enrage like three quarters of the people who see it. Like that is not an effective sign. I'm just going on the record right now. So the question is, how do we speak each other's languages more effectively? I think it comes down to empathy, too. It's just understanding a little bit of like, okay, so here's where this person prioritizes this and that. I obviously have different ones. How do we make this work? And it's not a zero sum game in that negotiation. Right, 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 right. Well, Gretchen, you have been so generous with your time. Like I said, I've followed your work. I'm a big fan of your work. I think everyone should go check it out. Check out The Four Tendencies. I'm so glad we could do a deep dive on it. Yeah. Hopefully we can get you back and talk more. Um, and, and where can folks find you? I know we've shared with it before. I highly recommend Happier um, as a podcast to listen to. I think there's a ton that it relates to with When to Jump, and people that listen to this show would love that. But is there anything else that, that folks should know? Well, I have a website, GretchenRubin.com, and there's all kinds of resources and posts and uh, information there about happiness and forming good habits and the four tendencies and um, all kinds of stuff. And I'm all over social media under my name, Gretchen Rubin, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, I have a weekly live Facebook show. Um, and I love to connect with li- uh, listeners and viewers and readers. Um, with, you know, I, I get so much from people's questions and observations and illustrations. So um, I'm like everywhere you look for stuff um just under the name gretchen (laughs) ribbon and maybe one last thing to end on we like to give people a nugget to take with them if someone's looking for accountability in making their jump yeah what what have you seen as the most popular or a personal favorite that you tell people yeah if you want to have accountability um have an accountability partner where it's two people who are going to hold each other accountable or even better an accountability group like whether it's people writing their phd thesis together or people who are launching their online uh you know uh etsy pages together like people who are going to talk about milestones, hold each other accountable, don't let each other off the hook, do it through that. 
uh, work with a coach, sometimes it's better to, it's, it's a lot of work to hold someone accountable. And so sometimes it's good to have a professional who's going to be paid and expert in how to hold you accountable. You know, it might seem like uh, an expense, but if it's going to be the thing that allows you to like d- d- accomplish something that you've really been wanting to accomplish for a long time, it's really worth it. Um, you can take a class with some kinds of jump leaps and jumps that you would want to take a class where you're, you have to produce um, can be a way to get you um, to do assignments that are going to get you going. You can create a client, a customer, or a student. Um, offer to do something for free. You know, if if you want to make it as a wedding photographer, tell five people that you'll take wedding you know wedding photographs for free. So you get your get you've got to get yourself organized because you can't mess up a wedding. That's a once in a lifetime thing. You're going to have to get your game together before you do that one time, and then from there you'll get the clients. Um, you can think about your duty to your future self. Um, right now, Gretchen doesn't feel like doing this, but future Gretchen is going to be so disappointed if we come to the end of 2018 and Gretchen right now hasn't made any uh, progress in that. I can think of my duty to be a good example for other people. I want to show my children that I can keep promises to myself and that it's important to stick to people's commitments. I need to think about my team. I told my team that I was going to get this done. If I don't get this done, I'm going to let everyone down. And I've heard of many people who will do things like, walk, you know, walk into a room and be like, hey guys, I'm going to run the marathon today and, it, and this year. And it's like, oh, okay, everybody's expecting me to do it. You can form, you can form or join a group on Facebook. Um, that's a great way to have accountability. Or there's millions of apps now um, that are aimed at giving people different kinds of accountability. Um, you can, um, you can think about, uh, a role. Sometimes people can do this where they, this is another imaginative form of accountability where imagine yourself in some role. Like you could say, um, I'm the, I'm the chief family financial officer and the chief family financial officer has decided that we need to have another $30,000 this year. So it's my responsibility to figure out where that's coming from. Um, a funny thing that some, somebody did, I think this was a person who needed to take the LSAT, um, she told her children, she put a picture on the fridge of like a, like a little rental house by the beach. And she said, hey, kids, if I pass the LSAT the first time I take it, that's where we're going to spend a week in August. If I don't pass the LSAT the first time, we're going to be staying right here because I'm going to be studying to retake the LSAT for a second time. <laughs> so you decide how much you want to support and encourage me in, take, in studying for the LSAT. Yeah, so then the whole family totally. is like, you got to sit down and study because we don't want to be stuck here in August. We want to be at that beach. And so there's all kinds of ways to create outer accountability wow. once you need, once you know. And in fact, I love hearing the imaginative ways um, that obliges have come <laughs> up with outer accountability. There's just dozens and dozens and dozens once you start thinking in those terms. That makes so much sense. Cool. Gretchen, thank you so much. You have been, like I said, so generous with your time. This is, it needs to be out there. I love the philosophy you take towards it. And I'm so appreciative that you can share your message with our global community. So thank you for joining the When to Jump podcast today. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gretchen. You know where to find When to Jump for more on jumping and all things When to Jump-esque. If you want to share with us your stories, ask questions, tell us about what you're doing, whentojump.com and at whentojump across social media. Thanks so much for listening to the show. My name is Mike Lewis, and I'll see you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 